Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am back with another episode of the Whole Brother Mission podcast. Uh, I am thrilled to have Dr. Jody Armour, who is the author of Nigger Theory, Race, Language, Unequal Justice, and the Law. And he's also a professor of law at the University of Southern California. How are you doing today, sir? Very good, Malik. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So uh, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. And I think, one, uh, this book is very timely, but considering what's going on in our current culture. But to bring us uh, up to speed with who you are before jumping into the book, can you uh, tell the audience about your journey to becoming a professor of law at USC? How'd you how'd you end up here? Yeah, Malik, I was first introduced to the majesty of the law as an eight-year-old when, as an eight-year-old, our front door was kicked in by a phalanx of cops, rolled in on my dad. Next time I saw him, he was prostrate with his hands cuffed behind his back. And the next time I saw him upright was on family day at the Ohio State Penitentiary, when you could come down and visit with uh, parents and who are incarcerated and family members, because we know that family separation didn't just happen at the border under Trump. There's been family separation as part of the criminal justice process in America uh, since forever, especially over the last 30, 40, 50 years when there's been this real spike in mass incarceration that's targeted black men It's been referred to by people like Michelle Alexander as the new Jim Crow. I call it racialized mass incarceration. We'll get into that hopefully a little more. But he was uh, looking at 22 to 55 years for possession and sale of marijuana. And he um, was one of those uppity black men who was going to do all 55, by the way. And his only route out was to reach up on the warden's bookshelves and start taking down law books and teaching himself criminal law, criminal procedure, and constitutional law. Then he got a manual royal typewriter and started typing out his writs of habeas corpus and other illegal memoranda on his cell floor until five years later, after he'd exhausted his state appeals and moved over to the federal system and gone through the district court, I was standing next to him in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati as he was arguing before an en banc panel of judges literally for his life. And now I teach his case in my criminal law class. It's called Armour versus Salisbury. And it stands for the proposition you would have thought it would have been established well before his case. Now his case is one you shepherdize for the proposition that it's a denial of constitutional due process by the state for a prosecutor to lie to a jury, intentionally, deliberately lie to a jury to get a conviction against a defendant, somebody who's being prosecuted. So my dad had approved that the prosecutor was a liar, a proven liar, a demonstrable liar, and that his lie denied him constitutional due process. He prevailed on that, and that's what kind of Malik got me into thinking about the power of words, power of language, because all he had between him and a lifetime behind bars 
was word, work, language. That's all he had. And he put words together in a certain order and paragraphs in a certain order. And the next thing you knew, his jailhouse door, his prison cell door was being flung open. So that's how I got into um, thinking about the law seriously. I wound up very quickly in a, be- a program called A Better Chance because when he went away to prison, we went from a middle class existence to crumbs and roaches and rats. So the only way I got out of that situation was a great society program called A Better Chance that takes kids out of inner city areas and puts them in boarding schools where they have a better chance to go on to college and you know go from there. So I went from a better chance to Harvard for undergrad, Berkeley Law School, went in right into teaching uh, pretty much and have been teaching criminal law, tort law, which is accident law, and um, stereotypes, prejudice, and the rule of law, my boutique upper level seminar offering. Got it. Well, there's a, there's a lot there with that story. I feel like just that history alone, that's a whole interview right there. Uh, so maybe we can we can talk more about that later. But I think that that's that's a really interesting uh, background for you, especially considering what you're focusing on now and now being able to teach that in your class. That's huge. Uh, what's the normal response to that? Because even even me, you know, I, I did look into you, you know, before we spoke. So I knew some of these things. But what's the typical response of your of your students when you share that? Well, I think a lot are, are a little surprised that uh, someone with my kind of background has gotten to the point where I'm teaching a law school classroom. Sadly, you know, if you come through very difficult backgrounds, your odds of escape are very slim. And so, you know, they don't, you don't tend to see uh, a lot of people teaching law who have come from backgrounds where their dad has been incarcerated from a, at a very young age and they've been reduced to government cheese and AFDC and scratching out an existence, you know, in any way necessary that you can get by on. Um, so, you know, that, that, that part is a little, I think, uh, surprising to some, but that's why, Malik, one of the questions you kind of posed in a little earlier conversation of ours that um, we are going to get into, so why not now, is the N-word in the title of my book and why, and it's because of what you're asking me now that I use the N-word in the title of my book. You know, the N-word is raw. My experience with the criminal law is raw. The criminal justice system is raw. I don't see any particular reason for us to you know, strive for comfortable conversations when we're talking about black bodies in bondage, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands um, and, and, and more in um, cages uh, that, who are being tortured in solitary. And um, we don't want to really look at their plight because we, as a society, not all of us, but as a society, and many, including many in the black community, um, we don't care about them because they're criminals. Because they, you know, once, once, we, once we otherize you by calling you a felon or a criminal, and that's why I use in, the, the, the N-word in my title, once we niggerize you, then we have a very easy time not giving a damn about you. It's a lot easier not to give a damn about somebody who's not worthy 
of our care and concern because they are niggas or niggers. And where I got that from is Chris Rock's routine that launched his comedic career. Everyone wants to put a mic in front of his mouth now and ask him to opine on racial justice matters as though he's an oracle. But let's remember how he launched his comedic career by going back and forth in front of a black audience in a routine called Bring the Pain, 1996. And his opening lines were roughly, it's like a civil war going on in black America. And there's two sides. There's black people and there's niggas. And niggas have got to go. I love black people, but I hate niggas. Boy, I wish they'd let me join the Ku Klux Klan. Shit, I do a drive-by from here to Brooklyn. And he goes on like that for over half an hour with a black audience laughing, amening, unhunting, you know, preaching all the expletives you can think of, encouraging him to draw this line between black criminals and law-abiding back. Because his basic definition of a nigga is a morally condemnable black criminal. That's his name, some morally, condemn, morally condemnable black or black criminal, because those are the, the, the activities that he describes these niggas engaging in. And if you accept that invitation in the punchline of that joke to distinguish between law-abiding good Negroes and morally condemnable bad Negroes or niggas, you are a big part of the problem today. You've always been a big part of the problem. If you're in the black community, especially, you've always been a big part of the problem. Now, you know, you're, you're probably ducking low and, 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 you know, Chris Rock wouldn't, would not embrace that routine today, would he? It doesn't sound quite so good today to say all these brothers who happen to be locked up are niggas. It sounds pretty tone deaf, in fact. But that's how time is. It catches up with you, right? And so, even though those attitudes are still there, people still feel the way he did, they are lower key right now. And you're hearing a lot more people talk about, you know, we care about the incarcerated. We want to make deep cuts in incarceration for our brothers and sisters, et cetera. Yeah, okay. See if, they're, if they really mean that. If they're extending that to violent offenders, for example, because most of the folks in prison are therefore not no low-level nonviolent drug offenses. That's a, that's a fantasy. They're in there for violent offenses, the majority. Those are just the numbers, and they're not, you know, disputable. So, yeah, that is, uh, that's why the book has the title, the N-word in its title. I'm taking, uh, I'm taking a shot at that mentality, that whole way of looking at the world, that invitation to dis make, draw a political distinction between morally upright, good Negroes, law-abiding, and morally condemnable, criminal, bad Negroes, right? Um, that is a pernicious dichotomy, and it's a pernicious distinction that's been fed to a lot of black people and a lot of middle-class black people, especially in others, still embrace that politics of respectability way of thinking about the black community and criminality, and it's wrong six ways from Sunday, and that's what I'm getting at. One of the things I'm getting at in the title to the book, Malik. Well, thank you for that explanation. You kind of uh, stole my next couple steps with, uh, you know, the question and the explanation. And I was planning to reference Chris Rock as well because it, it just it just makes sense. You know, we know the history. Uh, and I know the pushback that he got years ago when he said that, but I, I, I'm with you. I think it's, it's important to have a very real dialogue about these things. Uh, 
and be realistic about, you know, whether you want to call it otherization, stigmatization or niggerization, it, it's happening. Uh, and we see it even with the discussions about victims after they die. Uh, I always expect when there's a new hashtag of a, of a black man that's been killed in the hands of the police, I now expect some type of uh, media coverage of his past after he dies to then show, see, he was a nigger after all, essentially. So that, <laughs> so that it's like, well, you shouldn't worry about this because he was a bad guy. He did this. He did that. And, it, you know, so I, I think that's a very real issue and it's important to have that conversation. Brother, you putting your finger right on it. Let me jump in right there because I'm Go feeling you yeah, so yeah. much on just that point. You know, what the beautiful thing that I love, one of the things I was really attracted to in the Black Lives Matter movement. Because, you know, I really saw it. Fortunately, my students dragged me into the 21st century. They said, Professor, you got to get on Twitter. So they dragged me into (laughs) the 21st century uh, about three weeks before George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin's killer, was acquitted by a Florida jury for shooting to death unarmed 17-year-old Trayvon who had uh, some Skittles and iced tea with him. Okay? And that acquittal gave birth to the Black Lives Matter hashtag. That's the moment it was born, the hashtag. And then it, of course, the hashtag even blew up more once, you know, the Mike Brown case in uh, Ferguson came up later. And then, you know, it it seemed that every week you had a hashtag, you know, Walter Scott, hashtag Sandra Bland, hashtag Freddie Gray, you know, um, uh, Eric Garner. Philando Castillo. I mean, you just go on and on uh, the, the sickening procession of hashtags. But one of the things that the Black Lives Matter activists were very clear on and very forceful on, and it's changed the whole di- d- discussion, was that we're not playing that politics of respectability game. We're not looking, we're not trying, we're not going to say, you know, it's important to us to only put certain kinds of Negroes or black people forward as representative of our our racial justice struggle. You know, um, back in the 50s and 60s, Thurgood Marshall and others only wanted squeaky clean, reputationally and every other way, Negroes to be the kind of poster people of the civil rights movement so that they would be respected. You know, they were respectable victims. They were respectable victims of injustice, of Jim Crow, of racism. And so, you know, white society, you should, you know, really your heart should go out to us because our good, these are good, respectable Negroes and look how they're being treated. And um, Black Lives Matter saw early on that what um, police were going to do, what different media outlets were going to do and what the right was going to do was to say that these people who were victims of police brutality, unarmed people who were killed, black folks, that they somehow were bad Negroes. They, you know, really didn't deserve the, the care and concern we give to good law-abiding people. Look at, look at here, look at, look at, uh, Walter Scott. He was, uh, he was behind on his child support. Hey, wait a minute. Well, if he wasn't behind, if, if he wasn't behind on his child support, he wouldn't have been running and he wouldn't have to get shot six times in the back 
by a police officer. But maybe that was bad what the police officer did. But he was bad, too. So don't feel too much sympathy, empathy, care and concern for him. And the same, they, as you point out, Malik, they go right down the line, constantly putting the black victims on trial. And what Black Lives Matter said early on is, we're not playing respectability politics with these victims. Well, even if they were engaged in criminal behavior of some kind earlier in their lives, and even on the particular occasion, if they were engaged in political in criminal behavior, if they if they were, for example, as Eric Garner was selling loose cigarettes on the sidewalk, even if they were doing that, or as George Floyd may have done, passed a counterfeit twenty dollar bill, or any number of those kinds of low-level, you know, offenses uh, that people certainly don't deserve to die about, right? Uh, certainly when it comes to um, all of that, we don't have morally immaculate blacks. You know, they aren't, you know, the law-abiding Negroes in the sense that, well, technically Eric Gardner was doing something illegal. So was George Floyd. So was Walter Scott and running away from the police. So was this. So was that. We can always point to ways in which the victim wasn't Dudley goddamn do right. Right. But the point of one of the points of Black Lives Matter is you shouldn't have to be Dudley goddamn do right to get respect as a human being. You should be able to be, you know, make mistakes, be human, have human frailties and still be treated with dignity and respect, especially by state actors who have guns and bullets. Right. And use them on you all the time, a lot of times without any kind of real um, justification. So, yeah, that is um, Malik, uh, you know, kind of where I see the the, the politics of respectability uh, issues figuring here and why I'm so glad Black Lives Matter early on said we don't play politics of respectability. Our, we don't. We are we, you know, we don't give a damn about respectability when we're talking about respect for the basic human decency and dignity and humanity of a person that has committed even some kind of infraction or some other kind of crime, but certainly doesn't deserve execution at the hands of the state. Absolutely. And you you touched on something that. uh kind of stands out to me. So uh, before starting working with the Whole Brother Mission, I worked a lot in, in university life, not state schools, uh, but more uh, private uh, Christian schools. I was the diversity guy for the for the white schools. And one of the things I noticed is for that uh, concentric, you know, white evangelicals, uh, many of who uh, uh, are Trump supporters, there's this belief that I understand uh, from from their faith system that is the idea of human dignity uh, that supposedly exists for everybody. But it's interesting how that human dignity that, that, that they claim is a theological belief uh, doesn't apply with uh, these 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 hashtag black men and women. It doesn't apply when the person isn't squeaky clean or Dudley do right or fitting to what they deem. Uh, credible or worthy of life so there's there's an inconsistency that I've seen personally with that application of human dignity as well and I would I would stand with you that that's something that's just a general thing that should be applied to everyone you know I have a saved draft in my my Twitter right now I didn't send it but I was going to today and I, I was planning to say you know I don't care if every black person 
you know, rob their neighbor, that still doesn't give you the right to kill them. Uh, you know, we, we say that we're innocent until proven guilty and we have these laws in the justice system, but it's interesting how these core beliefs that are Americana or, or Christian or whatever the case may be get thrown out for for black people who are deemed less than, and I think that, that goes back much further as well. But but in moving forward... Let me, let me stay with you on, on that one point for a moment, Malik, because I like it, the one having to do with the our, our, our community of faith. Right. Um, I grew up in the, a Baptist Catholic household. My mom was Catholic. My dad and grandma who raised me were Baptists and had some AME folk over there as well. And so I'm coming kind of from a Christian perspective. And there's some other um, space and traditions that may have their own stories along these same lines. But for me, I especially have... Uh, interesting conversations with my Christian uh, brothers and sisters who support the death penalty, for example. And um, I did. I wrote a play over ten years ago uh, for Stanley Tukey Williams, who had just been put mm-hmm. to death by the state of California yeah. uh, when Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, refused yeah, to grant any kind of stay because. He concluded that Tukey Williams, Stanley Tukey Williams, had not achieved personal redemption. That was the standard he used, the legal standard he used um, in his uh, years in solitary torture in um, San Quentin. And the call of my question for the evening for the play was, should we pour liquor for Tukey? Should we, uh, there were 1,200 students roughly in Bovard Auditorium that I did the play before, should we um, express sympathetic solidarity with, sympathetic identification with, rather, and political solidarity with a cold-blooded, first-degree killer who co-founded the Crips? Because he really doesn't, you know, when we talked, uh, when he was talking, he's, he really didn't deny that he had engaged in at other times, not necessarily with those particular victims he was alleged to have been have killed, but he had engaged in deliberate killing, number one, right? And he was a co-founder of the Crips. So people who really, you know, all they when they hear that, they don't want to hear anything else. That's a bad Negro. That's a so-called nigga, right? Um, really would, would, would lump him in that category. And so I was talking, you know, and my play was, against that argument. You know, I, I, I was carrying a brief for the damned on behalf of Tukey Williams and saying that we should feel um, sympathetic identification with him and be in political solidarity with not only him, but many other black criminals like him, violent black criminals like him, and then beyond that, even other criminals, but the violent black criminals in particular. And I remember a Christian friend of mine who is a law professor at another school, as well, um, said to me at the time, well, you know, I think that Tukey Williams, given what he did, did deserve the death penalty, did deserve execution. And I said, okay, I got you. Okay, so let me me ask you this. What do you think was the, would be the appropriate penal fate 
for somebody who not only killed, let's say Tuki killed five, let's say he killed 10. I, I, I don't want to quibble, right? Let's say, say he killed 10 people deliberately, coldly, and co-founded the Crips. Let's say that all that was the case, right? Um, what do you think the appropriate penal fate, uh, we know what you think the appropriate penal fate for him is. What do you think the appropriate penal fate would be for somebody who killed a hundred times more people, you know, thousands of people, literally, men, women, and children, for no other reason than their belief system. No other reason. And she said, oh, of course, that's easy, you know, off with his head. And the death penalty, again, easy, right? I said, well, you know, the person I just described was Paul, who was, before he became Paul, who was he? Saul. What was Saul on the road to Damascus to do? Kill some more innocent Christians. That's what he was on the road to do. So if the penal fate that you say should befall even killers had been imposed upon Saul before he became Paul, we wouldn't even have a New Testament. You wouldn't even be calling yourself a Christian. He's the one who went around and gathered up John and Luke and, and, and everybody else, right? That was Matthew. That he, he he gathered all those cats up and said, "Now write your you know write your your uh, recollections. You know write them down. Let's get this gospel thing together, right?" And so yeah, we we don't deeply examine. That's what my book is about. You know, um, Malik, that you mentioned early on. You know, um, that doesn't come out to till October to, till rather August eighteenth, but you know it can be pre-ordered. Uh, it's available for pre-order now, but the, the reason I really kind of go at, um, I go at it as hard as I do in that book is we seem so comfortable in our hypocrisy, you know, and I, I hate to call my fellow, you know, I, I hate to go here, I hate to call my fellow um, people of the faith who embrace, you know, uh, the New Testament and its warnings about epistemic humility, you know, its warnings that you don't know what, you know, about someone's real moral worth. You can't make moral judgments of them too glibly. I mean, look, how much more heavy handed can you get, Malik? If I were writing a book and I said, OK, here's the symbolism I'm going to use. I'm going to use the Son of God on one side of him. I'm going to put a killer. <laughs> and on the other side, I'm going to put a, another criminal, a thief. You know, I'm going to put I'm going to flank him with bad Negroes, if you will, bad hombres, if you will. Right. Criminals, a killer and make it clear that, how, you know, how much more clear can I make it symbolically that we need to be showing some kind of um, mercy and we to um, criminals, including um, including violent criminals, we need to find it in our hearts to recognize their capacity for redemption, for rehabilitation, for restoration and reconciliation. And not just like we have over the last 30 years, just view things in, ter- in light in terms of retribution, retaliation and revenge. Sure. So you, there, there's several sound bites there. I appreciate that. I think that's something for uh, quite a few listeners to chew on. So before jumping to the, the next thing, I, one more thing I want to add or, or ask you here. 
Uh, many I see today when we have conversations about the justice system and Black Lives Matter and and policing and all these things, unfortunately, many times it just gets reduced to a liberal versus conservative conversation. And I, I, that, that frustrates me because there's so much more to this than just partisan politics. But you just spoke about uh, having a little bit more compassion and how we deal with those who have made mistakes, even violent mistakes in the past. Uh, how would you respond? Because I, I know the political climate. Uh, many would take your words and the words of others like that and label you a radical leftist that wants lawlessness within the country, that wants bad people uh, to be able to run freely and hurt good people. How would you respond to that? Yeah, yeah. Well, for one, again, I hate to say this, Malik, but if they are my if they are my Christian friends, brothers and sisters, right? And um, you know, there's there, we we have a whole lot of Christian brothers and sisters in the black community. You know, that we're, we're one community. When I go to black events. More than many other events I go to, public events, I know we're going to have prayer. You know, we're going to have a spiritual moment. That's just, you know, it, it's very still much a strong cultural norm in the black community. And so I'm talking, I'm saying to all of those, um, you know, brothers and sisters, that what you're saying is, uh, you know, you're saying that the, the the morality that I'm proposing is kind of revolutionary. Yeah, that's what makes the New Testament revolutionary. That's why it's revolutionary. I mean, if he was coming down saying something that it was going to be easy to perform to do, hey, you don't need to keep on going to church every week to get reinforced because it's hard not to give in to your urge for retribution, retaliation, and revenge, and instead to reach down in your heart for redemption and reconciliation and restoration you know we do that on sunday morning but then on monday through saturday we go back to retribution retaliation and revenge then on sunday here comes redemption restoration and reconciliation again right just take sunday and spread it out through the whole week make every day sunday when it comes to redemption reconciliation rehabilitation and restoration as your guiding values, you know, when it comes to blame and punishment, wrongdoers and punishment of any kind. Now, your further question, <laughs> which is the, always the reductio ad absurdum that they want to go to, which is, well, if you don't lock people up, if you don't have some prison system, it, you know, if you're a complete abolitionist in that way, prison abolitionist in that way, then you'll have... Um, violent criminals running rampant through the street, right? And look, one of the things that the black community wants achingly, very much, is they want murders and rapes and serious crimes like those in their community to stop. They want the people who are perpetrating them to be stopped because that's the only way they'll stop is if the perpetrators are stopped, right? It's a one plus one equals two now. We're not doing anything uh, fancy here. 
And that means that you have to accept at least some level of incapacitation. I, I don't know why this person may have this pathological urge to have sex with women without their consent. I don't. I may not know why he became the rapist he has become. He may have some very powerful stories that he can tell of his upbringing that are heartbreaking and help us understand what drove him to become that kind of person. But in the meantime, I have to, with as humanely as possible, without torturing him, without subjecting him to cruelty or unnecessary, you know, pain and suffering, I have to remove him from our community so he doesn't rape anybody else. Okay, uh, I, 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 that's just how it's got to be. And now, and anybody who says, well, no, we can't even incapacitate people who are killing and raping others. I don't know. I'm just not in that camp. You know, there may be some who are. I know there are some who are. I'm not one of those folks. You know, um, I think that what you hear a lot in the black community is. We want crimes here solved. Murders in a lot of these communities are only solved at a 40% rate or less. Rapes are often solved at a 20% rate or less. So, you know, a lot of the residents in, uh, in our black communities are saying, I want these crimes solved, and, and, and you're not solving them because instead of having your scarce resources as a police department going toward solving rapes and murders, you're paying all these police to chase down turnstile jumpers and to go after people who are jaywalking and committing all other kinds, you know, going after 20, you know, uh, going after weed, you know, making weed busts. You, you you're wasting all these resources on that kind of law enforcement rather than doing something about these rape, this rape kit backlog with all of these rapes going un, um, unaddressed because you're just not allocating resources to those kinds of issues. So that's what I would say to them. And you can do all of that and still reduce the prison and jail population a lot. By, even when you do deal with violent offenders, you know, a lot of times we're given a violent offender because they're violent offenders. Oh, that means 25 to life. We throw out 25 to life sentences like, like they're nothing. You know, um, life for this, life for that. Even for violent offenders, you know, you're talking about people who, you know, for one thing, age out of criminal prone age ranges. You know, you're as younger people, you're more crime prone. When you get over 50, they're not really posing much of a risk of crime. Right. And, and, and even earlier in a lot of these timelines and, five, you know, five or 10 years is a long time, even in America for, you know, years past. Uh, for manslaughter, even even just killing, intentional homicide, you know, it was in some jurisdictions unusual to get over 12 or 13 years for that. Now we, you know, we throw out 25 to life sentences and or just just life without parole or whatever without, uh, you know, w without any hesitation. So we got to rethink all of that. Absolutely. So the book is Nigger Theory, Race, Language, Unequal Justice and the Law. My next question is probably going to be uh, too big of a question, but I'm just going to throw it out there and you take it, take it wherever you want to go. Uh, here's the preface. We have seen rallies, protests, and some looting uh, in response to 
some recent deaths and videos that have come to light in regards to black men and women and the police uh, and just all around not getting fair justice. Even the case with Ahmaud Arbery, he was not killed by active police officers, but there was a clear mishandling of justice after afterward. So we, we see rallying, we see protesting, we see petitions on social media. There's a lot of discussion happening. I do see it starting to die down at this point a little bit. Uh, but what, from your perspective, should the goal be? And how do, how do we get there? Because once again, these the this current emotional reaction, uh, although valid, will die out. And I'll be honest with you, I think through things like this quite a bit. I talk to friends about it. I talk to people in the field about it. And many of us feel kind of hopeless because... In essence, we have a system that wasn't necessarily built for us. And in many cases, we know that we're taught or told by the majority, you know, just wait, be patient, so on and so forth. But it's pretty urgent when people are dying. But when you look at it and you look at how the odds are stacked against us in this regard, where the justice system is permittedly unjust toward us, is there really anything we can do or is this just the way it's going to be? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's very easy to become pessimistic and fatalistic about the lack of change. You know, I wrote a book called Negrophobia and Reasonable Racism, The Hidden Cost of Being Black in America in 1997, over 20 years ago. And exactly what I was writing about then is going on today. Ain't nothing changed but what year it is, Right. Um, and so you can look at the matters through those lenses and feel very pessimistic and fatalistic um, on the one hand. On the other, we just don't have that luxury right now. You know, uh, we cannot afford the luxury of, you know, kind of philosophical, you know, nothing's going to change. There's no because that can easily lead people to. Well, if nothing's going to change, well, why bother? Mm-hmm. And once people start saying, why bother? Then you have a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then there really is going to be no change because no one's going to bother to make change. Right. So. I have to look at a moment like this and say that there are untapped possibilities there. This is a chance for us to go deeper, to go beneath the Band-Aid cosmetic fixes that the, that the mere reformists and the mere liberals and the neoliberals and the, you know, the whole, you know, just um, standard establishment corporate um, democratic party, you know, that whole kind of beholden to corporate interest entity um, is, has offered a lot of non-solutions and just as often actually thrown fuel on the fire. Bill Clinton threw fuel on the fire. He got a lot more black people locked up. He got a lot more jails built, a lot more police put on the street. That was Bill Clinton, all right? Um, Mass incarceration, racialized mass incarceration has been bipartisan. Biden was an architect of mass incarceration. He was one of the key architects. You know, so you don't just look to 
the, you know, a, a liberal versus a conservative agenda for any kind of meaningful change because they haven't offered any. Right. That the real that hopefully this moment is an opportunity for us to see that the real underlying problem isn't one that has a technological fix like body cameras. They didn't fix anything, really, uh, nor any other kind of policy tweak like implicit bias training. The officers on, on, Floyd, on George Floyd neck had that, um, uh, you know, de-escalation training, um, community policing, all of those, all that was going on up in Minneapolis and more, and you see where that got us. So it's abundantly clear now that the real issues are not, not ones that can be addressed with those kinds of superficial interventions. Rather, the real underlying issue is that since its inception, since this nation's inception, black lives matter, black lives rather, do not matter. Black Lives Matter has not been something that this nation has practiced or believed in. Starting with chattel slavery, I do, I don't have, do I have to even start there? The Declaration of Independence, we're getting ready to celebrate it here on July 4th shortly. And, you know, we're going to sing the praises to these people who endorsed the Declaration of Independence in 1776 on July 4th in Philadelphia um, and talk and, and declare that all men are created equal and with uh, and and you know and should be able to pursue life liberty and and happiness um while they had uh, slaves waiting for them at home and people like you and I Malik were on auction blocks in public squares being traded those are the people whose declaration of independence we're going to be celebrating in a few days here on July 4th um but black lives didn't matter then did they they didn't matter after the Civil War, after that cataclysmic race war that lost, that caught, you know, that, that killed 600,000 Americans um, in order to end bondage of the, you know, the, the, to bring black bodies out of bondage. Um, by the way, when people talk about allies, that's what allyship looks like to me. If you're not talking that, I, I don't, when you're talking people, you know, Gettysburg and white folk, laying down their lives on a battlefield. May, you know, I know p different people had different motives. There's lots of reasons people fight, right? They go out there to fight. A good number of them went out to fight against this inhuman institution of chattel slavery that everybody could see was utterly inhuman, <laughs> you know, barbaric. And we were, so th there, a good number of bodies out on those bloody battlefields were there for that reason. I don't want to argue about how many. Someone want to argue about mixed motives that people here for that reason, this reason, that. A good number of them were there for the right reason, right? And there's still some allies that we can find here today, but those are the kind of allies you need, ones who are willing to lay something on the line to fight for black equality and black freedom, because that's what they were dying for on the fields of Gettysburg, right? So that, that's just a quick aside about allyship, but back to... Um, you know, kind of the the main point is black lives didn't matter during Jim Crow. You know, while we were in our, our American form of racial apartheid and and, you know, all of the stunning of growth that, that happened there of, of the black community by, um, you know, the white power structure. And then 
do Black Lives Matter now? When I walk down the street here, Malik, um, to, to um, Skid Row in, in L.A., which is the largest homelessness encampment in the country, the fiercest expression of structural violence in America, and you look to the left and right and you see it's 75% black, not 75% people of color, 75% black. So when have Black Lives Matter? Hurricane Katrina, black people standing on rooftops with water up to their necks, right? Here, one day goes by, two days go by, three days go by, four days go by, water still up to their necks. Sean Penn is rowing up, handing out fresh water because FEMA still couldn't get his act together. Four, week, four days in, the black people having water up to their necks. That's what's happening in Skid Row. Water's up to their necks, and nobody's giving a damn about it. Compare that reaction to the one of the United States after those planes ran into those buildings in, in 9-11. And there was a panic of empathy for those victims, and we just got it done. We just got to them and helped them, right? There, nobody wanted to hear about bureaucratic impediments or red tape. There was just a panic of empathy, and they were helped. That hasn't been happening with black lives. Black lives have not mattered until they start to matter, until we figure out a way to get people to act like they matter, Malik, uh, we're not going to deal with the underlying problem. But now at least we see it clearly. Right. So I, I know we can't we can't afford to just wait for prosecutors, district attorneys, uh, judges, or police officers' hearts to change. We can't just sit around hoping for the best. Nope. So in a in a practical sense, though. Uh, yep. What is one thing you think that we could put our attention toward more? Is it more, you know, black people seeking uh, to be judges or, you know, district attorneys? Is it, uh, you know, more police on the ground? I mean, everybody has different suggestions. What would you say is one thing that maybe is under addressed or unaddressed that we could put our attention toward that may help us to see some progress in this area? Okay, I'll start with what it is. Now, I'll first give you what it is, and then I'll go back to what it isn't, because you name a lot of things that it isn't that people often say it is. That's all we right. need to do. It's not. But before, before we get that, let me give you a direct answer first. One, example, one direct answer would be elect new prosecutors. If we're talking about the criminal justice system, the, the prosecutor's office has almost unlimited discretion in a lot of ways and they are a large part of the reason that we have racialized mass incarceration today and so first and foremost for example here in LA there's getting ready to be an election for the next prosecutor and it is a black woman named Jackie Lacey that's back to your point about now I'm going to be critical of the point about well, what, what, what is, is one of the solutions to get more black people into office? No, that is not one of the solutions. I would say that first, no. And now let me back up and demonstrate why the no. Um, getting black people into office who will really promote and protect the interests of black people, yes, 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 yes. But just getting a black face into office, that's like just getting a black face on the Supreme Court. Well, look who you got, Clarence Thomas. You know, he's done as much to damage the interests of black people by his judicial decisions as any other judge on, on the Supreme Court. Right. So just because you have a black face in an office 
doesn't mean that you have somebody who's going to really promote and protect black interests, you know, the black community's interests first. Uh, and uh, even if not first and foremost, which it should be first and foremost, you know, frankly, um, if you are running as a as a uh, uh, candidate concerned about racial justice, you know, it's hard for me to imagine you running as uh, someone who's sick and tired of women being oppressed and saying, well, I'm not going to put women's, you know, liberation as something uh, first and foremost on my agenda. I would hope that, you, I, that, you know, I'd be, I, at least I'd understand if you made it first and foremost. Black politicians have to be held to that kind of standard, or at least if you're not going to make that your first and foremost issue, you're going to give it significant weight. You're going to give it adequate weight which means, uh, you know, the weight it deserves, and it deserves a hell of a lot of weight in your decision-making process, okay? So if you want to, you know, avoid some other kind of language games and semantics that people may want to play about, you know, should you put the black community's interest first and foremost. But Jackie Lacey is an example of a black woman who's the head prosecutor in L.A., which is a position of enormous power. You're elected to the position and it is the most powerful position in law enforcement, the most powerful, way more, power, more powerful from the standpoint of mass incarceration than the chief of police's role or any rank, any lieutenant, captain, anybody else in the police department and the mayor's office, too. In terms of, you know, law enforcement, that prosecutor makes the decision about what charges are going to be brought how many charges, how long you're going to be tried for, what penalty you're going to have to suffer if you decide to go to trial rather than accept whatever plea we cram down your throat. The prosecutor has enormous discretion. And somebody like Jackie Lacey has said things like when people ask her, why do you prosecute 13 times as many blacks as non-blacks? Her answer was, black people make bad decisions. All right. If you have a prosecutor and you can check that, Google that. Don't take my word on it. Um, and her, her debate that she had with George Gascon and Ra Rachel Rossi, she says that explicitly. Um, I wrote an op-ed about it. So, you know, she, she knows she can't run from that. If you elect somebody with that mentality into that office, what does it matter whether they're black, brown, blue or purple? Right. What, what does it matter? They have anti-black policies that they're pursuing and that's all that should matter you know and somebody you know uh, one of the things that black lives matter has made abundantly clear too through its um activism is the issue isn't black and white it's never been you know a black versus uh, a black versus white issue it's always been a black versus blue issue right you have a lot of cops in blue who are just as brutal and um, and abusive as white cops? Um, look at Freddie Gray. Three of the three of the six cops that were accused of killing Freddie Gray, at least three were white, but were black rather. Um, you know, a lot of these cases of police brutality involve black officers. So it's n it's never been about black versus white. It's been about blue and the mentality that comes with blue. And it's and the anti-black mentality that tends to come with the blue uniform that seems almost endemic to it, except, you know, there's some groups like LEAP and some other groups um, that are law enforcement groups that are resisting some of that. 
But by and large, you know, that th- th- there's a culture there that is, uh, you know, blue lives matter and damn it, I'm proud of it. And what else is there to say? Kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So with, with all this considered, and I thank you for that note. I think that's something that's more that's more uh, tangible for us to pursue. Of course, it's not as easy, but uh, I think it, it's helpful to give us things to consider and understanding how the power structures work, because I appreciate this new generation that will make a make a scene on social media. But you and I both know that the prosecutor doesn't care what's happening on Twitter. And, uh, you know, although we do see some some officers being fired and so on and so forth, I do think there's a point in the org chart where that stops, where Twitter isn't going to sway. I mean, maybe it can. Maybe maybe I'm ignorant, but I don't think Twitter is going to sway a prosecutor, especially like the one that you mentioned. And the only way it'll it'll sway prosecutors is by making them feel that their reelection is being jeopardized somehow by all of this buzz that maybe they're getting on Twitter, if that can translate from Twitter to the ballot box, right? And if you can get the outrage that's on Twitter into those ballot boxes so that somebody like Jackie Lacey goes, like they say in the hashtag, Jackie Lacey must go, once you start bouncing people like that, then that'll show that Twitter has some real clout you know, when it comes to the, the franchise, the vote itself. And wow, wow that, you know, that, that's a huge deal in its own right. Right. Yeah. And that's good to connect connect voting to this, too, and especially with an election year coming up. Uh, it's important to see that uh, we can uh, contribute toward the the or be part of the solution by who, who we vote in and not just looking at the uh the presidential election because there are implications at a local level like a lot of these police brutality cases their issues are what's happening locally not necessarily federally but we do need um to look at our our justice department as well uh but- your, your point is great you know don't just look at the presidential election even if you mm-hmm. don't want to vote for if you can't hold your nose and vote for either one even if you can't go in and vote down ballot you know forget okay don't do anything there Vote, you know, get, do, do something about that prosecutor, the sheriff, if the sheriff is running for election, the city council members, the mayor, all of those people are making decisions about how the criminal justice system is going to look. And you have enormous, you know, your, your, your vote can really matter there, even if um, it, you, you may be more cynical about and, uh, and pessimistic about what's happening at the national level at right. the top of the ballot. Yeah. So in closing, can you just tell us about what to expect in your book? Uh, what can we expect to get from reading Nigga Theory? Yeah, a lot of this conversation we've been having, Malik, is uh, what I wrote the book about. You know, I'm trying to invite us, encourage us, exhort us to come up with a new moral framework, a new moral compass when it comes to thinking about criminals in general and violent criminals in particular. And I'm talking about black criminals right now and how we in the black community once, you know, wrapped our arms around a politics of respectability that called our black brothers and sisters who were criminals niggas. Bill Cosby did a famous routine on a pound cake, his famous pound cake speech, infamous one, 
where he says, why are people complaining about that black boy getting shot in the back of the head over the pound cake? Why do you take the pound cake? I've been hungry. I've not not had some pound cake. I didn't take it. You know why? Something called upbringing. That you had a lot of us talking like that, right? And that we still do. And so what I'm trying to do in, in the book is get us to fundamentally, um, you know, challenge that moral compass, that moral framework, and, you know, to find ways to forge political solidarity, bonds of political solidarity with um, black criminals in particular. Um, and also, you know, about, you know, a part of this project, Malik, is um, rap. And, you know, hip hop culture more generally, but rap in particular, because, you know, like I said, my dad got out, you know, was able to get out of prison with language. That's all he had. And I tell my students now there are four occupations in America whose bread and butter is word work, language itself. That'd be writers, poets, lawyers and rappers. Right. I, I think a lot about the power of language that you see in these urban griots, you know, um, people like Pac, Nas, you know, I'm going back, I'm old school, you know, my, my, my Mount Rushmore is Pac, Nas, Hove, and Q. You know, that's just me. But uh, they, they're all, you know, inward virtuosos, number one. You know, they are engaged in politically critical art, some, you know, some some more than others, but all some. You know, Pac a lot, Cube a lot, sure, Nas a lot, you know, Hove from time, from time to time. He'll get in there and mix it up, too. You know, uh, and so uh, this book is also about tapping into that art form, into its energy. I talk about Pac. I talk about, you know, various uh, uh, um, artists who, you know, for that matter, um, Bill, um, uh, Chappelle, Dave Chappelle. You know, uh, the last poet, uh, Richard Pryor, uh, uh, even Chris Rock. I mean, you know, people who've used the N-word is sometimes part of social commentary. Um, and sometimes and Dave Chappelle certainly does that. Uh, so it's in that spirit. And so it, it's performative. You know, it's a book in which I'm performing, you know, a, a, a particular from, through a, from a particular genre. At the same time, I'm doing a lot of you know, moral philosophy, legal philosophy, you know, a, a lot of other kinds of critical, you know, analyses. At the, at the same time I'm doing that, I'm also participating in this art form, you know, this kind of in-laden art form that has roots in NWA, goes through Cube and, you know, like I said, you know, death certificate and all of that, right on up through... Um, right on up through somebody like Kendrick getting the, a Pulitzer, you know, getting recognized for the word work as, as again, some, uh, someone who um, uses language in a, in a challenging way. So, yeah, that's what I'm hoping folks get out of it, Malik. That's, that's, that's good. That's so in, in closing, I have a few things. So um, I've, I've had some friends that I know and then uh, who, who are authors and others as well who I don't know whose books are seeing a spike in sales right now because of the current climate. I know white people in droves are buying books on race and the black experience and 
uh, I think your book would they should add to that to, to that list uh, for trying to understand these things better, but also black people as well, because uh, as you mentioned the Bill Cosby reference and the Chris Rock reference, how we see ourselves, how we look at class, and what types of black people are palatable and which ones aren't and which ones we should hide and so on and so forth, those are things that I think we need to think through as a people as well, and how we might contribute directly or indirectly to the status quo that we're discontent with. In addition yep. to that, uh, you mentioned Chappelle. It's funny, you, you keep mentioning things that I plan to mention, too. So I really think, as I've mentioned to you before, that this will be very a very timely book. And uh, it remind, and it, it's, it, it, I imagine and assume it's going to go very far because of the current moment. But with that in mind, I'm reminded of I got introduced to Paul Mooney through mm-hmm. Chappelle. And I yep. remember uh, one, of, <laughs> one of Paul Mooney's jokes was, you know, I don't want to get too famous or too successful because white people might just come and take me. So huh. I want your book to see, be successful, but I don't want, want white people to take you, though. Hey, listen, you know, <laughs> you know what? Uh, I am I am dyed in the wool. You know, there, there's a there's a few things that, die, that I'm dyed in the wool about. One of them is being from Akron, Ohio. I'm a Buckeye, you know, like Le, people when after LeBron went down to Miami Nobody who wasn't from Ohio could see him coming back to Akron. But we knew that, you know, Akron has long arms. Ohio has long arms. So I'm dyed in the wool when it comes to that Buckeye stuff, Malik. And, you know, I'm black to the bone. My home is your home, you know, in that respect. And that's because of my dad's experience. You know, if not for my dad's experience and recognizing that, you know, Man, you and I, Malik, you know, I, I enjoy light skin privilege. You know, I know there's some issues within the black community, but when it comes to that most fundamental issue, you and I are standing on the same auction block. And that's how I define blackness, right? Who could have been standing on that auction block, right? And so um, my recognition of that reality is going to keep me from, you know, um, from, from slacking. Don't worry about that, bro. I'm, I'm, I ain't going to slack on this. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I don't doubt you at all. It's just, you know, you know, Paul made it seem like they'll just put you in the bag and drive off. Yep. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, it's Professor Jody Armour, pro, uh, professor of law at USC. For those that want to connect with you, what's the best way? Yes. Um, you know, my Twitter handle, at nigga theory. You know, um the last film about my work, 22-minute documentary, what used to be called, called Nigger Theory, but it was changed to Civil Wars and got into a lot more film festivals that way. But um, my first article is Nigger Theory, the book's Nigger Theory, and the Twitter handle, at Nigger Theory. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for pushing against the grain and forcing us to have necessary conversations about race, language, and justice. I appreciate your time. Uh, I am Malik Blade. This has been the Whole Brother Mission Podcast. Thank you.